Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, and I get to serve as directing pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You're invited to join us each week at 9 a.m. for a time of traditional worship or at 11 a.m. for contemporary worship. Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon. Today's scripture reading is from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants. Just you can hear the wind, but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going. So you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. How are these things possible? Nicodemus asked. Jesus replied, You are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? I assure you, we will tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The United Methodist Church is my chosen family. I wasn't born into it, and so I'm not a cradle Methodist, as some would call it. I was raised in a tradition that to me felt high on sentiment and high on being seen going to church, but it felt low on Christ-centered discipleship, and you can take that for what it's worth because I was very young at the time and didn't know a lot about what discipleship meant. What I basically knew is they tried to teach me a lot about how to behave and be nice, but I could learn about that from PBS, and frankly, PBS's puppets were better. I had some experience of caricaturized evangelical Christianity in high school. Some of that hype caused me to get enthusiastic about it, but plenty of the duplicity caused me to not engage much deeper. 
And so I really encountered Methodism because my then-girlfriend's granddad was a Methodist pastor. And we, when we started dating seriously, when we were attending college, I would join her for worship at a local United Methodist Church in downtown Bloomington, and then we'd go out for coffee afterwards. Coffee was the draw for me. We primarily went because they had a sign language interpreter for that service, and Amy, my fiancé at the time, was studying to be a teacher for the deaf and hard of hearing. The preacher was old and folksy. It was a traditional service in a very traditional building. The messages were nice enough and occasionally gave me something to consider. I felt welcomed, rarely challenged, and it was fun to see how much sign language I was picking up as I watched the interpreter during the service while the preacher was talking. One of the things that I appreciated about the vibe of that service was that it didn't insult my intelligence or cause me to reflect too deeply about how I was living as a college student. It gave me some warm fuzzies, and I was otherwise left well enough alone. That was what I knew of Methodism. When Amy and I got married, we were married at a Wesleyan chapel, so I got some sense that the Wesleyan Methodist tradition valued education. We got married by a pair of Methodist pastors in the family, so I knew that we could have God language in the ceremony that really didn't mess with my uncommitted agnosticism at the time. It was all very pleasant while still planting in me an understanding that Jesus had more to do with other aspects of my life than the hour I would spend on Sunday mornings listening to a feel-good message and looking forward to coffee. But then we moved and stumbled into a United Methodist Church that felt a little bit different. The passion level was higher. The connections made us feel welcomed, even when I made it known that I was just along for the ride as a skeptic. The teaching was deeper. The application was clear. The mission was made unapologetically known. The difficult history of institutional religion was not whitewashed, but it was referenced to reinforce the need for imperfect people to experience not just the saving grace of Jesus Christ in a moment of assurance, but the grace of Jesus Christ that reshapes our lives more and more into the likeness of Christ all throughout our lives. And that body of believers invited us to be equipped to study the Bible, to pray, to serve boldly, to give generously, to grow in love, and to walk deeper in a faith that our lives might be absolutely defined by God's presence and power. And having experienced that passion, mission, and teaching, praise, prayer, and fellowship, I submitted my life to Christ and have been seeking to grow in that dependence ever since. I wasn't born Methodist, but I figured if this tradition, this human contrivance of a denomination could reach someone like me, it could reach others with the good news of Jesus Christ as well. I wasn't a Methodist from birth, but Methodism did help me to experience a new birth. I share the importance of the, this movement and my love for this way of following Christ because over the next few weeks, we're going to take a critical look at some of the challenges that the United Methodist Church has been experiencing for decades and how they are nearing a boiling point. This is my family. I was grafted in and I'm grateful. My natural instinct might lead me to get defensive about some of these battles or I might bury my head in the sand hoping that time and neglect might make them go away. But... I love this tradition because Jesus used it to reveal his love to me. It's not perfect in the sense of being without flaw, I know that, but I absolutely believe that it's still useful for the purpose that God has set before us. So when you hear me address these challenges, please know that it's not as some outsider who's throwing stones, it's as a member of the family wanting the family to be as healthy as it can be. 
Some of you may remember in August of 2018 when we took a look at a series called United, where we looked at the ways Christ calls us together as one body to the glory of God, how our oneness is a calling of Jesus, how a house divided against itself cannot stand, and how our shared public witness has remarkable power. So why is this one beyond United? Well, there are several reasons, but the leading reason is that the global United Methodist Church has largely accepted the foregone conclusion that we can no longer function as a singular church united by message, voice, or fellowship. Some of that has to do with differing and opposing perspectives on the inclusion of those who are LGBTQ, but that isn't all. It also has to do with governance, expenses, understandings of how Scripture is read and interpreted, who Jesus is, and how we exist together in relationship. When I'm in Pollyanna mode, I know for certain that there are ways by which God can restore our unity and prevent us from denominational split. But when my cynical or simply realist side wins out, I know we'll have to figure out how to navigate this unknown future. There have been efforts over the years, through our every four years general conference, to come to some sort of decisive conclusion about how now we shall live. That's been going on since about 1972, and we'll get into that a little bit more later. But 2019 held for the Global United Methodist Church what was intended to be a specially called single-issue decisive moment that would settle our divide and allow us to move forward. What resulted from that conference, which took place right across the river in St. Louis, is that the traditional and conservative positions were approved by a margin that could not be interpreted as a mandate, and the disconnect and dissatisfaction was felt by all parties. It was another heartbreak that represented the worst in Methodism to a watching world, and we're still reeling a bit from those outcomes. The Global United Methodist Church was scheduled to meet again for a regularly scheduled general conference in 2020, and because of the pandemic, that conference was scrapped. There was a plan to meet virtually this May to set an agenda that at least approve budgets and operations for general boards and things like that. That was called off for a number of reasons, but the alienation of those from parts of the world who didn't have reliable access to technology was chief among them. My goal in this series, as we look at some of these challenges, is not to tell you how to think, but to offer you some of the considerations. One of the reasons we're even having this family conflict is because the United Methodist Church has functioned under this big tent understanding since at least 1968. That's been our approach, a broad spectrum of faithful approaches, living as a Christ follower. That's part of our denominational DNA. It's also a part of our current polarization. I have my own leanings and preferences, and you'll get to know a little bit more about how I get to those through these messages, but I also know that I am an itinerant pastor. My role is to help this congregation discern who God is calling St. John's UMC to be in this community at this time, and to help lead us in this vision as long as I get to be in service to this church. Not that my opinion doesn't matter, but I also know that the identity of this congregation is not, in this community, is not dependent upon me. It cannot be. And so I hope to be here for a good long while, but I also recognize to some degree I'm a temp. All Methodist pastors are. And so that's part of the reality. But I also want to help us engage in this discernment in some of the healthiest ways possible. We're not all going to think alike. And so I'm not going to demonize or insult anyone, Christian orthodoxy, those essentials that have been held and defining the beliefs of a Christ follower through the ages, that is really fairly generous. 
I'm not going to make non-essentials into essentials. I'm not going to shame people for having their own discernment about how it is that they need to follow Christ. As much as it breaks my heart, there will likely come a time when this congregation and each of us as disciples will have to make a choice about how it is that we affiliate with the future iterations of Methodism or not. Some will be able to go where the church determines to go. Others, for their own reasons, may not. That part makes me very sad, but I have to keep in mind that our, though our differences may cause us to find ourselves under different tents or aligned with different tribes, in God's eyes, the body of Christ is still one. We are still siblings, and we are called to treat one another accordingly. Even when you think somebody is a hate-filled bigot or an unrepentant sinner, we should be very cautious with the stones that we are willing to throw at one another. And so today we're starting with a look at the foundational part of the church's identity. What is it that we're built upon? And will it last? That takes us to our first lesson this morning. The kingdom of God doesn't advance unless people experience new birth through Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God doesn't advance unless people experience new birth through Jesus Christ. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee, and after dark one evening, he came to speak to Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can only reproduce human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind, but can't tell where it comes from or where it's going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. Nick comes to Jesus ready to be empty. There were things he thought he knew that he seemed to hold fairly loosely. In his culture at the time, as a member of the Pharisees, he would have been seen as a person with cultural status and as someone knowledgeable. He most certainly would have been a teacher of the Hebrew Scriptures, but something was happening that was beyond his experience. He didn't have a good explanation for it, and so he came to Jesus and said, Here's what I know. I know you're from God. I know you are here to teach us. I know I had to spend some time with you to find out for myself what's going on, and that's all he said. No questions. He didn't appear to have an agenda. He acknowledged that there is something special about Jesus, put himself in a position to maybe figure out what it is, and readied himself to learn. That's a really good position. Not everyone in his camp was quite as drawn to Jesus. Not everyone wanted to acknowledge that Jesus was from God. Nicodemus did what few of his crew were willing to do, acknowledge the, the limits of his knowledge, and to see that in light of new rev revelation, come ready to have himself emptied out, even of the good things that he had, in order to be filled with something possibly better. So Jesus started where Jesus thought it was important to start with somebody who had a pretty impressive pedigree or resume or CV like Nicodemus had. Jesus started with a jarring statement that defies logic on purpose. To see the world that God is building today and for eternity, you must experience new birth. It's not based on your pedigree. 
your relationship to the line of Abraham. It's not based on your status as a leader of the chosen people. It's not based on your education where you learn to parse the scriptures with rhetorical flourish. It's about receiving a brand new start that is probably a little confounding and is certainly a bit humbling. You have to be reborn by the power of the Holy Spirit so you can see and experience and live into a new spiritual reality. And Nicodemus wasn't getting it, not because he was dumb or obstinate. He was going through some religious deconstruction. What he had known was being challenged by someone Nick wanted to understand better. And so it put his well, this well-respected man on his heels a bit, but Nicodemus followed up for better understanding. And Jesus basically told Nicodemus that it's as understandable as the wind blowing. We may not have a full understanding of where the wind comes from, but we can feel it. We can see its work. And in short, there is a mysterious part of this life of faith that will always defy our understanding. It doesn't mean we don't dig in. It doesn't mean we don't ask questions, but we won't fully comprehend it either. With modernity, there have been a lot of efforts to remove mystery from faith. And we worked hard to remove the stigma of appearing foolish and gullible from the experience of professing faith, but we won't be able to remove that stigma entirely. We're not signing on for a life of comfort, esteem, and acceptance. We sign on for a life of humility and service and dependence. The mystery helps us to understand those terms and figure out if those are terms that we can live with. There are all sorts of things that we've done to make Christianity more palatable for modern mindsets and sensibilities, but it was never a faith system designed to be perfectly aligned with cultures or politics. That's because those things are designed to make sense of this temporary world, and our spiritual birth gives us the capacity to live for what is eternal and what's enduring. We get new eyes. We get a clean slate. We get forgiveness for sin and the power that helps us to overcome even the temptation towards sin. We get healing that's both all at once and across a lifetime. And above all, we get the assurance that Jesus Christ has offered for us a sacrifice that has won for us God's acceptance for all of eternity. And that nothing in this world or the next could snatch us from God's hand if we're willing to accept this gift. And that's one of the marks of new birth, that we know Jesus has done what it takes to claim our lives, reform them, and to keep refining us as part of the body of Christ until this earthly sojourn is done. But things like going to church aren't the same as being a part of that redeemed body of Christ. And that takes us to our second lesson. Religion and reconciliation are not synonymous. Religion and reconciliation are not synonymous. How are these things possible? Nicodemus asked. Jesus replied, You are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things. I assure you, we will tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. John Wesley, who is the inadvertent founder of the Methodist movement, stated in 1789, I'm not afraid that the people called Methodists should ever cease to exist in Europe or America, but I am afraid lest they should only exist as a dead sect, having the form of religion, 
without the power. And this undoubtedly will be the case unless they hold fast both the doctrine, spirit, and discipline with which they first set out. What was Wesley afraid of? Not that the name Methodism would retire, but that the movement would simply turn into an empty religious shell. One that doesn't believe in anything, trust in anything, or become anything of eternal meaning. This is one of the risks of comfortable Western Christianity in general. It's not just the fundamentalism towards the poles of our political spectrum, but the apathy around what's at the center of our faith. That would be more of an institution of self-preservation than a movement of salvation. That through its prescribed practices, Methodism would look a lot like Christianity, but lack the faith, evidence, and intimacy with God to back it up. That it would become a social club over and above the body of Christ. And John anticipated that. John Wesley anticipated that because he saw it happen in his own Church of England. It's the very reason he set about to fan the flames of reform and revival. And sadly, as Nicodemus shows us, time in the pews or positions of responsibility don't guarantee that we get it. For many positions of religious authority at the time of Jesus, leadership meant adhering to a fairly strict understanding of the Jewish religious tradition. That was crucial during the time of the Roman occupation. God always provided a faithful remnant to set apart from the occupying culture and to pass the faith to new generations once the people were liberated. It was a vital role and an understandable role for their circumstances, but their circumstances were temporary. That doesn't mean that they're to be ignored or avoided. Things like sexism and misogyny, slavery, racism, xenophobia, inequality, mental health crises, and the exclusion of those who are LGBTQ definitely don't seem tangential to those who are experiencing the effects of being wronged or harmed. That's not unimportant. That also doesn't mean that engaging with the culture is wrong. I fully believe that God has gifted churches with unique callings and opportunities to reach new and different and diverse segments of the community. Not every church has to be cutting edge. Not every church has to be primitive. Each congregation has a personality, and allowing that personality to engage with the culture so people's lives can be touched by the good news of Jesus Christ is helpful. I bet you all found out that the tools and opportunities of a church planted on a large piece of land right next to a subdivision are different from the tools and opportunities of a church that was situated downtown in a landlocked location. It's helpful to be aware of those things. That's not unimportant. But this is the only place where I'm really going to drive my input as a more right way to go. No approach to cultural engagement is served well unless we center on what it is to be a disciple, what it is to be a dearly loved child of God, what it is to worship and pray and serve and give and share in a soul care fellowship and community that is all marked by the presence of the Holy Spirit directing our lives. And so I'm going to visit my quadrant table here. You can maybe see that it's marked with some letters. We're starting off with the uh, cultural connections. Speaking of relevant cultural connections, this is probably just like a step above the flannel graph that used to be used for telling Bible stories. How many of you remember flannel graph? I don't. I've only heard stories of it. That was, that was before my time. So I'm going to spend some time with quadrants over the next few weeks so we can kind of plot things out, mostly because I'm a visual thinker. And so we can get an idea of where things are and where we might want them to be. So these continuums are not perfect or exhaustive. 
Uh, they're just illustrative of some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about in a given week. And one of our axes this week deals with the continuum between cultural club and Christian discipleship. So on one side, you've got a cultural club and Christian discipleship. Cultural club would be something that functions like a country club or a social fraternity or a community organization like Rotary or Kiwanis or something like that. None of these are bad things. They all have a purpose. But Christian discipleship basically means the organization exists exclusively to invite people into a saving and lifelong relationship with Jesus Christ by remembering our identity in Christ and engaging in spiritual disciplines which is a literal part of discipleship. And so I'm going to uh, mark St. John's with red. We have that uh, you know, cross and flame, so we're going to have St. John's as red. If you were to put St. John's on a plot for cultural club or Christian discipleship, you, know, you can imagine in your mind where you would mark it. And so I'm, I'm going to mark St. John's probably about here on the continuum. Don't, don't take offense or anything at that yet. I'm going to explain why. I know this church has opportunities to engage in things like worship and study and prayer and service and generosity and for caring for one another at the soul level. I also know that practices that center on the presence of God and introducing people into a saving and lifelong relationship with Jesus Christ are not necessarily the things that define St. John's to the community. I would put myself just a little bit, I'm going to use green for me because my name starts with G, you know, it's green for Grant. I'm going to put myself a little bit over here. Not a lot, just a little bit over here. And that's largely because even though those spiritual practices and disciplines are very important to me, I'm not sure I always engage them in ways that make them contagious, and I know for a fact that I am still interested in being a person and part of a church that connects well with our cultural context. That's still a very big deal for me. So for your own personal experience of St. John's and your own spiritual practices, where would you put yourself on that spectrum? You don't have to shout it out or anything, but just think about where you put yourself in that spectrum for why you were a part of this community. It's not for a grade, but it is helpful for reflection. So the church isn't a mission statement or a set of principles, but it's the people who are a part of it. Regardless of what we say on paper, it is what we are, what you are, that really determines our place on this spectrum. And here's why I have a real bias in this specific category. The church is not an organization among organizations. It's not a charity among charities. The church is God's plan A to represent Jesus Christ in the world so that everyone might come to know that Jesus Christ has shared love, a sacrificial gift on their behalf. So no matter what else good we do, there's not another organization or charity in the world that God has charged with this awesome opportunity and responsibility What we do with this central piece significantly impacts what we do with any of the other important matters that come before us. And then there's our third lesson this morning. To endure, the church has to live in and reflect the light of Christ. To endure, the church has to live in and reflect the light of Christ. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. There's no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for believing in God's one, 
for not believing in God's one and only Son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near, for fear their sins will be exposed. One of the things that I've noticed over the course of this pandemic was the occasional failure of short-term memory on my part, especially when it came to communication. Uh, When we were in situations where we interacted with the same people on a fairly regular basis, it was pretty easy to think, oh, hey, I've got to let Kim know that I need this type of envelope or I need to uh, be on the lookout for this letter that's coming in or I've got to ask this person how their mom is doing when I see them in worship on Sunday morning. It was very regular based on the expectation that I would see people with a, a more common frequency. But what's happened sometimes instead is I know I need to communicate something. And I would go through several possible scenarios of how to communicate that thing. And I would draft the conversation or mentally compose the email or text because I wasn't as practiced at human interaction as I was before the pandemic. And so I'd inevitably get distracted by another task. I'd push pause on my original task, later think I'd done it because of the different scenarios that I'd already exhaustively gone through in my mind and ultimately drop the ball until the thought returned to me in a panic. I hate to admit that, but that's definitely been a part of my 2020 brain fog. That really backfired on me if I was counting on someone to respond to a communication I failed to offer. Maybe I'd hope that somebody could pick it up by osmosis or by the force or by coincidence or divine intervention, but I can't count on those. The best path is obviously through clear communication. Jesus offered some clear communication to Nicodemus. We often abbreviate his words here to get down to one key verse, but that leaves out some things that are very important for Nick and for us to know. John 3.16 has a context. And so if we were to paraphrase Jesus' teaching in a way that lists the problem before the solution, it might go something like this. God's light is in the world. That's Jesus. And if people love God, they're going to love God's light. If they don't love God's light, they probably don't love God. In fact, they've rejected God by rejecting the one that God sent. They've separated themselves from the God of life. And by that separation, they've chosen condemnation. They love their darkness more. But God dearly loves this world. How do we know? God gave us the greatest gift he could possibly give, his very own son. And if you recognize that Jesus is God's son and trust him, you've chosen light and life. There's no judgment for you. And in fact, you receive the very gift of true and eternal life that Jesus came to offer. The invitation is extended. The choice is yours. I'm going to get a little bit technical here just because some people get really uncomfortable with Jesus' statement that seems to be a claim of universal truth. But first, if Jesus is who he claims to be in this passage, he gets to do that. But here's how Christ followers have dealt with that through the centuries. There are these understandings often referred to as Christian exclusivism, Christian inclusivism, and universalism. Universalism is different from universalist Unitarian. Universalism is an understanding that Jesus' work on the cross won salvation for all people regardless of their faith response. That even those who reject Jesus in this life will inherit eternal life because Jesus' work was sufficient to win it for them. And not even faith is required for them to benefit. Everybody's in, but it was still Jesus who gets us all there. And then there's Christian exclusivism. That basically means that salvation is reserved for those who profess and live a life of 
committed Christian faith. Those who are saved know that they are saved because they professed faith in Christ and actively live to serve Jesus. Christian exclusivism, Jesus did it, they overtly and explicitly trust his work. And then there's Christian inclusivism. That means that those who have made that profession of faith and live their lives actively seeking and serving Christ have the assurance of their salvation, but God is still sovereign in choosing who is saved in ways that may not be clear to us. In other words, God might choose to save others because, though they never made a profession of faith in Jesus, they responded appropriately in God's eyes to the light of grace that was available to them. Think about people who have never heard the name of Jesus. One of my seminary professors described it in this way. As Christians, we can know for certain where salvation is, but we can't know for certain where salvation is not. That's where I tend to land, Christian inclusivism. Our God is at liberty to bring whoever God wants into God's own kingdom by the sacrifice of Jesus. I'm not the boss of that. But I do know that my, in my own life, the peace I experience from having the assurance of Christ. I know how sweet it is to be claimed as a child of God's grace without a sense of having to prove my worth, but growing in that grace into this new identity as one who is loved unconditionally by my Heavenly Father. Because that's the case, I want to represent that light, peace, and joy. I want to reflect that compassion and hope. And as much as I wish that grace could be conveyed by osmosis or by the force, if I want people to experience that same sense of love, I might just have to share the good news of what Jesus has done. That's one of the other choices we get to make as a congregation. Are we going to invite people to this life-changing, world-transforming relationship with Jesus Christ, or are we going to take the Burt Backrack approach to communication and go with wishing and hoping that somehow people will pick up on the message? So I'm going to go back to my silly whiteboard for a, a moment here. And based on my experience of St. John's, here's what I've seen. I'm going to go with my red. Red is my St. John's color. So I think St. John's probably lands... Uh, about here, and I'll explain why in a moment, and I would probably, again, put myself right about here. Not a huge, not a huge difference, but right about there. Oh, I don't need the markers too much anymore, so that's where we'll land. There are pockets of people who are super invitational at St. John's, and you've encountered them. They'll invite folks to anything. They'll see a new face, and they'll invite them to Sunday school and lunch and to engage in a ministry and to pick out curtains. You know, there are people who are just really excited about invitation. And then there are others who would sooner die than have to talk to anyone about anything having to do with religion outside of the church. And I think that represents a lot of Methodism in the United States. This data goes back to a training I was at in 2014, but I think it still conveys the point. Personal invitation is still statistically the best way to have someone come to be a part of the church. And in fact, 52% of those without a church say, I'd go to church if somebody I knew personally invited me. Now remember, this is from 2014, but over the course of a year, only 1% of United Methodists personally invited someone to church. And research shows that 90% of United Methodists say, not only have I not invited someone, I'm not going to. 90%. That's probably why our United Methodist vows for membership changed in 2008 with the Book of Discipline, where we commit to witness in addition to prayers, presence, gifts, and service. Methodism may have been experiencing some decline because of cultural irrelevance or anachronistic governance or decaying facilities, 
but just as responsible is the fact that we don't invite people. We don't invite people. We don't invite people to church. We don't invite people into a relationship with Jesus. We don't invite people into prayer. There's no marketing or publicity in the world that we can do that will ever be the equivalent of loving people earnestly, living their lives for Jesus Christ, and prayerfully taking the risk to invite someone to experience God's love. No matter what kind of events we hold or what kind of flaming poodles we juggle to try and connect with a new generation, Jesus designed the church so it grows by disciples reaching out to another person and sharing God's love. It's baked into the recipe, and we haven't outsmarted God on that yet. Everything else can only hope to add to this main thing. I know it's hard to invite people to church sometimes because church is awkward and messy and weird, but that's part of how people can know they're welcome. Because a lot of our lives are also awkward and messy and weird, and yet still relentlessly beloved by God. But listen, we'd all feel uncomfortably out of place in a perfect church. We don't have to wait for one before extending an invitation. As this challenge facing the United Methodist Church plays out, we get to discern what kind of disciples what kind of church God calls us to be. And I am confident that we can move ahead with grace and respect for one another, but especially when we establish these main aspects of a church's identity are central to who we are as St. John's today and well into the future. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we are grateful for this good news that you have invited us into this life-transforming community, that you have called us to shape one another more and more into the likeness of Christ because from one another we can learn what it is to worship and pray and study and serve and give and be in this fellowship. God, we pray that you would open our hearts, that you would set before us opportunities, that you would call up those who are just being nudged by your spirit to, to take a step to deepen that relationship. And Lord, we pray that we would be an invitational people, that we wouldn't wish and hope that somebody might possibly accidentally hear about the good news of Jesus Christ, that we wouldn't wait for a time when we've perfected our message and finally tuned our elevator pitch, but Lord, that you would give us the opportunity to share the love of Christ with people who are in need, that you would allow us to invite your presence into circumstances outside of this hour. And to let you do what you do best, to love people, to heal people, to restore lives, and to call us together as your body. God, we thank you for this. Whatever challenges face us, Lord, because you are with us, because you lead and guide us with your wisdom and your spirit, Lord, there's, there's nothing standing against your church that will prevail, not even the gates of hell and death. We thank you. We praise you and we love you for who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.